All right, well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings will be in chapter 2. This is on page 280 in the black hardback Bibles around you. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those, open it up. And if you don't own a Bible or have one uh, that you can read very well, take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. And uh, Kate will be making his way back in here in a minute. But you guys tell him for me, that was awesome. Okay, well, it was awesome. So it's a great, great way to start the morning. So page 280, 1 Kings chapter 2. How many of you had a chance to know all of your grandparents? So some of us, not even half probably. And I I didn't either. I, I had no chance to know my paternal grandfather as my dad's Dad, he died before I was born. Uh, he would have been an older grandfather anyhow had he lived uh, as he was born, as he used to put it. And I didn't ever hear, hear this, but this is the way my dad told it, in aught nine. So I wasn't born until 79. So he would have been 70 by the time I was born had he lived that long. But he didn't. Uh, he died in 1970 um, from a heart attack. And he first had the heart attack. He was replacing some fence posts down by the barn and he had a heart attack and was able to muster the strength to, to walk back to the house. It's about a hundred yards, um, uphill, mustered strength, got there. And, uh, my grandmother, uh, got him to the hospital. And so my dad was called from work. My mom was there. My dad was there. My grandmother was there in the room. Everything looked okay. He had survived, and then he must have felt something coming on because he, he turned to my dad and said, take care of your mom. And his eyes rolled back in his head and he was gone. And so his last words ever to my dad were, take care of your mom. And my dad tried for the next 39 years to do that until my grandmother died, ironically, in alt nine of this century. But those were the last words. And, and for my grandfather, they were off the cuff. You know, just kind of, you felt this off the cuff. But if you had a chance to think ahead, to plan ahead, and to think about the last words you would ever say to your child or someone significant in your life that you love, the last chance to pour into them to say some of the most important thing in your life that you would want for them, what would that be? This morning in chapter 2 of First Kings, we have David doing that. Now, we've already seen David's last public comments. We saw that in 2 Samuel chapter 23, but these are his last words to his son. The most important thing I could say to you, son, here it is. And it's not just for his son, but it's also for us as well. And they are last words to live by. Specifically the first part. Because when you look at this chapter, it breaks down really into two parts. You begin, David lays out this, this general spiritual charge to his son Solomon. And then he lays down this specific and political charge to his son Solomon. And that political part is very specific to Solomon. It begins with bringing uh, Shammai and Joab to justice for their treason as well as 
blessing Barzillai for his loyalty. And then the rest of the chapter just rolls out how Solomon does that while also bringing justice to Abiathar and Adoniah. And so to keep track of the characters, there's a who's who in chapter 2. See how that rhymes? They're on the back page of your sermon guide, so you can follow that. But I think the focus of this text is really in the first four verses. Because these are very much words, not just for Solomon, but for us as well. And so let's read them, and then we'll chat about them and ask some questions. All right? And so chapter 2, 1 Kings, page 280 in the Black Carback Bible's first four verses. Read along with me, if you would. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. It's just, death comes for all of us. It does. It comes for all of us. As I've said so many times, I'm either doing your funeral or you're coming to mine. It comes for all of us. And so David is saying, I'm about to die, and someday you will as well, Solomon. And so between now and that time, don't waste it. Don't waste your life. And to not waste it, live this way. Verse 2, be strong and show yourself a man. And so what does that mean? Is that like being physically strong? Is it being successful? Is it being rich? Is it being an athlete? Is it, you know, being a, hunt, a hunter and a fisherman? Is that what being a man is all about? You know, he defines it after this. Look at verse 3. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. That's what makes a man and what makes a woman. You live that way. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, hearkening back to 2 Samuel 7 in the proclamation of the Davidic covenant. And so David gives this charge to Solomon to follow the Lord for his own good as well as for the kingdom that God has promised David. But Solomon won't do it. Like his father, David, and like all the kings that will come after him, he will fail. And so once again, this text is crying out to us like First and Second Samuel did over and over and over that we need a better king. That we need a perfect king. That we need a king who could keep the law perfectly and would keep the law perfectly. Who would rule his people peaceably and who would lead his people to green pastures and still waters. And that king is Christ the king. The king of kings. Who has come and inaugurated his kingdom through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and who will come again and consummate his kingdom and bring the fullness of it. New heavens, new earth, no more sin, no more death. Former things have passed away. Behold, he makes all things new. And so right off the bat, this text points us to Jesus. 
But it not only points us to Jesus, it also calls us to something. Because again, these are David's last words. His last words to his son Solomon, by extension to us. And they're last words to live by. Because remember, for all of David's faults, which were plenty, this is still King David, anointed by God, a man after God's own heart, precursor to the Messiah. And so this is him at the end of his life, just taking stock and saying, son, all that I know, all that I am, all that I've been through, all that I've experienced, all the ups, all the downs, all that I've learned, here is what I want for you. Here is what matters most. Here is what is most important. Right there, verse 2, be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of your, your Lord, our God. Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies as written in the law of Moses. In other words, David's last words, the most important thing in his life that he would want to pass on to his sons and to us is to love God and obey Him. Love God and obey Him. David's saying, that's what I want most for you. That's, across all my life, if I give you one thing, love God and obey Him. And friends, these are indeed words for us to live by. Last words for us to live by. To love God and to keep His commandments. And so I want to chat a little bit about that. And then I want to ask and answer a couple of questions related to that. And so to get us kicked off, understand that, that these this two, you know, we look at it as two things. Love God and keep His commandments. Really, we can't bifurcate them like that. Because they are inextricably linked. Jesus puts it this way in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And friends, the order there is so important. Because it only flows one way. Love will lead to obedience. Obedience will not lead to love. Like obedience in and of itself will not produce love for Christ. It'll produce Pharisees. It'll produce self-righteous, judgmental jerks. In and of itself, that's what it will produce. But listen to me. Love for Christ will produce a desire to obey Christ. Okay? Love for Christ will produce a desire for obedience to Christ. The great theologian Johnny Cash said as much. In his song, I Walk the Line, he says, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. You know the line. You got to give me something. Because... Yeah, maybe we should put it on the screen. That was terrible. <laughs> because you're mine, I walk the line, right? Because you're mine. He doesn't say to make you mine, I walk the line. He says because you're mine, I walk the line. Not to make you mine, because you're mine. See, if you're a believer in here, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
based completely upon what Jesus did, not you. So it's not about works. It's not about earning it. The only thing you bring to the table is your sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So we don't do that. Jesus does that. And he adopts us into his family. He makes us his son or daughter. And so now I am his. And he is mine. And because he is mine, now I walk the line. Not to make him mine, but because he's mine, I now want to live for him, walk with him. You see the difference that that makes? That not to make him mine, but because he's mine. And so obedience is not like the pathway to know God. Rather, it is a sign that one does know God. You see that? Obedience isn't the pathway to know God, but it's a sign that one does know God. And so while obedience can't lead to faith, it should flow from our faith. Right? It should flow from a love of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is because when Christ saves you, he starts changing you. He gives you a new heart. The new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah speaks of this. He gives you a new heart with new desires, new motivations. And things that used to not bother you now do. Things that you used to brag about now you're ashamed of. Things that you used to pursue now are anathema to you. Things that you used to not care about now you do. You care to pray, to gather with God's people, to read His Word, to care for others. To hear His Word preached, sung, to grow in Christ. And this process, this changing, it's not all at once. It's a process. It happens over time. It's a biblical word called sanctification. And what that means is a process of ongoingly becoming more and more and more like Christ. Not conforming to the pattern of this world, but being transformed to be like Christ. And where you see this happening, Christ is at work. It may be at a snail's pace, but where it's happening, Christ is at work. And so we want to rejoice as we see that in one another's lives. As you see progress, Maybe it's not the rate we want to see, but as you see progress, let's rejoice in one another's life. Let's rejoice in our lives as we see Christ changing us. And when we see love for Christ, producing obedience to Christ, we want to celebrate that. We want to, we want to take joy in what God is doing as we're living out the reality that Jesus calls us to. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so with all that kind of laid as some groundwork, let's then ask some questions and seek to answer them. And so question one, I want to answer this morning, if you want to write this down in your notes. Question one. If Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, here's the question. Why then do believers who love Jesus often struggle to obey him? So if Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, why do believers struggle to obey Christ? 
Why do we struggle to obey Christ? Well, if I grabbed a whiteboard like I do sometimes and I brought that up here and we did kind of like a Sunday school class, you guys would start calling out all kinds of reasons and we could fill that thing up with good reasons, okay? Absolutely, we we could fill that thing up with good reasons. But I think we can be very, very simple in one way because I think one of the biggest ones is, is just this. We don't obey God because we don't really believe that He is who He says He is. We don't really believe that he is who he says he is, or at least we just constantly forgive it, forget it. Because we'll get these ideas, these lies, in our heads when it comes to God's commands where we think, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, well, that may be true for most people, but not me. Like we think that we are the one exception that God forgot to write in the Bible. Or we'll think, God just doesn't understand my situation. Do you know how dumb that is? God's omniscient. You can't even keep up with your keys and your phone half the time. So he wins. He's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. He's kinder than you. He's omniscient. He's God. You're not. He wins. And so any, that's a dumb idea, thought about the Bible, friend, you can't do that with God. He's omniscient. Well, God's just so old school. He's so archaic, friend. God's eternal. He's outside of time, so you can't go there either. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by the little cultural bubble we live in right here in this 21st century. He's outside of all time. This is who he is. And so when God tells us something and we disagree, we have to assume that we're wrong and yield in submission to him because he's omniscient. We may understand his restrictions. We may not, but we must follow them. And our culture finds this kind of obedience unbearable. And when I say our culture, I'm not just talking out there. I'm talking in my brain, you and I. We don't like this. We want to first assess God's rules, and then we'll possibly follow them if and only if we understand and agree with them. But friends, if God is God, how unbelievably arrogant is that? I mean, if there is a God, we must come to the point where we accept that he makes the rules. Even if we fail to understand them at first, because he knows better than us. And so humility demands of us, if we're unsure, that we submit to the one whose knowledge far exceeds our own. And while we might push back against this thought, we don't, we don't like that. We just got to obey him because he says so. We might push back against that thought as it relates to God, but we intuitively know it as it relates to the rest of our lives. For example, how many of you had a child who wanted to put a fork or a knife or another metal object into an electrical socket? Has anyone ever had a child? All right, so I got a couple of hands. Steve, when they did that, what did you say? 
Yeah, so he obviously had done it and got that zap. It's too late. It's too, but yeah, I should have picked Angela or Nikki over here because I wanted to get beforehand. Did you guys stop either of your child? Okay, what did you say when you're trying to stop them? No, don't do that, right? Neither of you sat down and said, well, you know, child, let me explain. At the subatomic level, there are electrons bouncing back and forth between orbits. And this creates what's called an alternating current. And this alternating current flows through the wires in your walls. And if that current hits you, it's going to disrupt your central nervous system, burn your skin, possibly stop your heart. Do you understand? Right? You didn't do that. You just said, no, don't do that. And you did that because you love your child. You want to protect them. So you just said, don't touch. And that's perfectly fine. Because you as the parents love your child. And while they are young, you know much more than they do. But friends, the gap between a toddler's knowledge and a parent's knowledge pales in comparison to the gap between our knowledge and God's knowledge. And far too many of us have deceived ourselves into thinking that God is only a slightly stronger and slightly smarter version of ourselves. Friends, he's not. He's God. He made the universe. He made the cells. He invented the electrons that are crossing the orbits. And so if we only obey God when he makes sense to us, then we have no business calling him our Lord. We should just call him our advisor instead. And so one of the reasons we often disobey God is because we don't believe that he is who he says he is, or we just constantly forget it. We don't believe he's omniscient. We don't believe he's all-knowing. We don't believe he's all-wise. But a lot of times we likewise fail to believe that he's good and gracious and kind. And so we think of him as kind of a grumpy, cosmic killjoy instead of a loving father. And this is where we need to rewire and recalibrate our brains. Because God's commands for us always 100% of the time are gracious gifts from the creator of the universe to his creations. They always have our ultimate, maybe not immediate, but our ultimate best interests in mind. I mean, case in point, look at the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was in my best interest, not his. That was best for me, not him. Friends, when God does things for us, it's because he's a loving and good God. And so he's not this vindictive boss who sits up in the sky hashing out orders. He's a gracious and loving God who hands out commands for our blessing. And so again, like his parents... Like just straight up, one of the best things that ever happened to me in understanding... God's love for me was becoming a dad. Because I am a fallen, flawed 
sinful human. And I love my daughters so much. And if I have that kind of love as a fallen, flawed, sinful human, how much must my perfect father love me? Even in the midst of my nonsense. And so again, like as parents, like we want our commands, because we give commands to our kids. If you don't, you need to. We want our commands to our kids to be for their long-term best interest. Uh, that's what we want. We want them to be for their good. We want to lead our commands and our rules and all that to lead them to blessing. And hopefully, over time, that they'll you know, have seen how this played out and they'll come to a place where they just know, hey, if mom and dad say, I may not understand it, but they want the best for me. Now, that's a prayer I know, you know, we got kids, you know what I'm talking about, but that's what we want. That, we, that they know, that they know, that they know that we have their best interest in mind, even if they don't understand why we might say something. And it's the same with God. He loves his people. He wants to guide us. And so when he speaks into our lives and convicts us or rebukes us or corrects us through the reading of his word or the preaching of his word or a loving friend coming and speaking his word to you in grace, speaking the truth in love, welcome that. Because that is God in his kindness not just writing you off and be like, fine, just go on with your life and, and continue this downward spiral that's going to lead you to destruction and a complete shipwreck of your life. This is God caring enough to correct you and straighten you out. This is a grace of God. And so we need to stop the blame game with God. It isn't God that's robbing you of joy. He wants to lead you into it. Who robs you of joy is you. No one's made a bigger mess of your life or robbed you of more joy in your life than you have. Than I have in my own. And so stop trusting yourself so much and start trusting Christ and His Word more. He's smarter He's wiser, he's kinder, he's for you, he has your best interest in mind. And so follow him and keep his commands, right? Love him and keep his commandments. Because unless Jesus is a liar, this is a big deal. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But what about, and this is the second question this morning, what about when we don't? What does that mean? When we don't keep his commandments, what does that mean? What do we do then? Well, first of all, let's look at what Scripture says about this. So if you'll turn with me way to the right, almost to the end of the Bible, in the New Testament, to the book of 1 John. To the book of 1 John, Angela read this. She read, she read part of chapter 2. I'm going to back up into chapter 1 a little bit. And then we'll roll into chapter 2 as well. But 1 John, if you're in a black hardback Bible around you, this is on page 1021. 
1021. If you want to kind of cheat like I did, I have a leather-bound Bible, but it's the exact same page numbers as you guys have in the pews. That was purposeful, because I was always forgetting the numbers. 1 John chapter 1. Again, what, what, what about when we don't? What does that mean? When we don't keep his commandments? What, what do we do then? What does that mean about us? 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means he puts them away. He absorbed them in his body. He diverts them from our head and he takes them himself. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this way we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so straight up, for some of us in this room, we fail to obey God because we don't know God. For some of us in this room, you fail to obey God because you don't know Him. You don't love Him. You're not a Christian. The biblical word for that is lost. And to be sure, John's not talking perfection and obedience here, okay? Because even as a believer, you're going to have a fight on your hand every day against sin. But fighting is the key. I can't stress that enough. Fighting is the key. And so what John is talking about here is when you're not even fighting. Like you can't say, I'm a Christian... I was raised in the South, and Papaw was a deacon. I've been to church my whole life. I know John 3.16. And when they asked in VBS, who wants to go to hell? I did not raise my hand. When they asked who wants to go to heaven, I did raise my hand, and they baptized me. I'm good. But John asked those who do not do what God commands. John says, what are they? He says they're a liar. Okay, an imposter. Okay, not a Christian. Friends, listen closely to me. People who love God 
and seek to follow him, jacked up as they may be, but fighting, that's a Christian. People who don't, they don't care, they don't fight, they don't try to pursue holiness, yet claim to be a Christian, you need to check yourself. There's words like liars and imposters all through the Bible for a reason. Because, I mean, yes, we are all imperfect. Everybody in this room is a sinner. But the tense of the verbs that John is using here is like an ongoing present tense. So what he's talking about is like a habitual lifestyle of sin. Unrepentant, habitual lifestyle. And so he's saying, living in that way, habitually unrepentant, then it is a myth that you think you're in fellowship with God while walking ongoingly in darkness. Not falling, but ongoingly, willfully. Okay, to to think that you can have a relationship with God and not even seek to be walking as Jesus walked. That's a myth. And so it's a lie to claim, I'm a Christian alcoholic. I'm a Christian homosexual. I'm a Christian adulterer. I'm a Christian who delights in worldliness. It's just who I am. I'll always be that way. But I'm a Christian. Are you sure? Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, to be sure, lest you misunderstand me, Christians do fall into alcoholism. Christians do fall into homosexuality. Christians do fall into adultery. Christians do fall into worldliness. And on and on and on we go. That happens. Sin happens. But what we're talking about here is a purposeful, intentional denial, okay, refusal to agree with God about sin, no transformation towards Christ-likeness, no desire for it, really, no effort towards that, being more controlled by desires for the world instead of desires for God. At that point, it doesn't matter whether you say you have fellowship with God or, or not. You walk in darkness, and you can tell a tree by its fruit, says Jesus. And so the answer to, what about when we don't obey God? The answer for some of us is that we're lost. You're not a true believer. And some of you are saying, you can't judge me. I'm not. God is. I'm just the mailman telling you what the Bible says. And you may not like the mail, but the reality remains. You can receive it and recognize it and repent and believe and turn to Christ. Or you can continue down the path of destruction that you're on. The choice is yours, but the mail has been delivered. And so I implore you then to trust Christ. To trust Him. To take hold of the salvation he freely offers to anyone who will believe. Take it. You say, I mean, you've made a mess of your life. Christ says, I will replace it. Just take it. He's good. He's kind. He's made a way for you. And so trust him. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, friend, trust him. If you'd like to talk more about what that means, there'll be an elder by all the doors on the way out, and I'll be hanging around. I'd love nothing more to talk to you about that. But at the end of the day, for some of us, the answer to what about when we don't obey, the answer to that, like, what do we do? Trust Christ. Trust Him. And then you'll have a desire to obey. He will start changing you over time. And so that's the answer for some of us in here. We're, we're not Christians. We need to become a Christian. And that offer is extended to everyone in, who's not a Christian. But for others of us in this room, we have repented. We have believed. We are fighting for holiness and obedience, but we just continue to struggle and slip and fall, sometimes in the same area, sometimes in the same sin. And so the answer for those of us that are in that boat is to remember the gospel. To preach the gospel to yourself daily. To remember the good news. Because look back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I love that word advocate. Like as a parent of a child with Down syndrome, I have learned a lot about advocating over the last almost seven years. Advocating. You speak for those who can't. You champion causes and programs and opportunities for their benefit. Friends, that's what Jesus has done for you. Not just what He has done, but what He is doing. Because He's not dead. He's alive. He's interceding for you right now. And it's like Jesus is standing beside the Father and He says, Hey, Dad, that lying, cheating, two-faced, absolute hypocrite over there, He's mine. I died for Him. He's mine. That's Jesus. He's our advocate. He was righteous for us. And His righteousness is now ours. The big Bible word is He's imputed that to us. It's like He's clothed us. It's like He dropped a blanket over us that, that covers us. We're under His righteousness, not in our own. And since God's love for us then is based upon Christ's righteousness, not our own, that means that God's love for us doesn't vacillate up and down based upon our actions because His love for us isn't based upon our actions. It's based upon the actions of Jesus. And God's love for Jesus can't vacillate. He can't love Jesus more. He can't love Jesus less. And we're in Jesus. We're in Christ if you're a believer. Now, you can grieve the Spirit with your sin, but you can't make God's love for you vacillate. Again, parents, you don't love your kids less when they disobey you. It saddens you. Makes you a little annoyed. Amen? But your love doesn't change for them. You love them. You do anything in the world for them. 
And that's what Jesus did. He went to the cross for you. You are secure in Christ if you are his. And so yes and amen, God is light. Yes and amen, we are to walk in that light. We are to fight our sin. But remember, yes and amen, even when we do fail, we have an advocate with the Father. Who stands arms wide open, ready to forgive believers and non-believers if we would just call upon Him. And so would you call upon Him? Would you confess your sins to Him? Believer, would you repent and turn back to Him and seek to truly follow Him and His commands and His example and His kindness and His lifestyle and His evangelism? A non-believer, would you take hold of Jesus' offer of salvation today and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord? Because while Solomon did not always follow David's advice, I mean, he did not heed his father's last words to live by for the bulk of his life, for the majority of his life. But right at the end, after he'd wasted so much of it, he realized dad was right all along. And so he wrote at the end of his book, Ecclesiastes, which is kind of like his memoirs, right at the end of that, he writes, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. And so let's learn from Solomon's blood. He tried everything under the sun, found no satisfaction, and realized it's only found beyond the sun, not in this world. It's found in Christ and loving Him and keeping His commandments. Those are last words to live by. Let's live by them. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. We know that your word is good and true and right. And things will go better for us if we would just trust you and obey you. But Father, like the song we sing sometimes in here, Come Thou Fount says, Our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Father, would you do that in our lives? Those of us who are yours, who you have saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, seal our hearts and help us to follow you for your glory and our own good, and for those who are not yet believers in here. Would you open our eyes to your grace, to your kindness, to your goodness, to your mercy, shown at the cross where your justice and wrath against sin met 
your mercy and grace. And Jesus, you took our place. You were condemned for us. So that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. Help us to love you more. Because you first loved us. In Jesus name. Amen.